the reason being happy is a great commandment is because like other commandments, it's a formidable challenge. Yeah. It's not the natural state of affairs for us all to be happy. And that it's a it's a lifelong enterprise. And, and for some people, you know, it's an epic struggle. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, a podcast about Jewish teachings on resilience. My guest today is Daniel Jackson. Daniel is a photographer. He's a professor of computer science at MIT. He is married to one of the first women Orthodox rabbis. Uh, he's the father of three children, and he is the editor of an extraordinary collection, Portraits of Resilience. So Daniel and I came together out of this a shared interest in resilience and out of a shared commitment to Jewish living, to Jewish practice, to Jewish wisdom. And I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, Daniel. Thank you so much, Deborah. It's uh, such a pleasure and an honor to be part of your wonderful podcast series. Oh, thank you. Um, Daniel reached out after he heard one of the podcasts, and we connected and had just such a rich conversation. And I thought, this is exactly the kind of conversation that we're seeking to capture on this podcast. And so I said, would you like to do it? you know, in a, in a recorded fashion. So there's so much that we could talk about. But I, I think where I want to begin is to ask you how you came to your exploration of resilience. Wow. Um, well, in some sense, I suppose for all of us, a search for resilience is a, is a lifelong search. It was heightened for me by, I guess, two things. One was a very painful episode in my own family in 2010, in which one of our family members had a very difficult depressive episode. And then a, a really a bad period at my work at my university, where we had uh, increasing rates of depression and anxiety, and um, peaking in the year 2014 um, with the most tragic um, spate of suicides. By the end of the year, we'd actually lost um, seven, seven members of our community oh. um, that included uh, a colleague of mine, um, and we were, as a community, we were struggling to find, to find ways to move forward. As you mentioned, I'm a photographer, and I was uh, looking for photographic projects and wondering if there was a photographic project that might contribute to, to helping us become more resilient and to deal with these tragedies and to maybe somehow nudge our community in a happier direction. And um, that led to the project that, that, um, that I'd be happy to tell you about. And then I think subsequently... Following the project, I've been mulling over its implications, in particular, um, its connections to, to my Jewish life and to my Jewish commitments. Well, so let's talk a little bit about Portraits of Resilience, because it's really, I think, a, an extraordinary project. Will you talk about both the process of creating it as well as the product that you did create? Sure. So the original idea was um, to make a gallery of photographic portraits of members of my university community, students and faculty and administrative staff who had experienced uh, depression or anxiety or some other kind of uh, mental illness. Um, and my idea was that this might somehow counter the stigmatization by putting up uh, an array of faces and saying, these are people who are uh, not only not ashamed of what they experienced, but they're proud um, that they have, they have faced these very difficult challenges. They're, you know, I thought of them as kind of 
warriors on the front line mm-hmm. of a modern battle mm-hmm. um, who could return from the battle and inform us all um, about this you know, worldwide epidemic and teach us something about it. So it started out purely photographically. But as I talked to my subjects in preparation for taking the photographs, um, I ended up uh, learning amazing things. And, and, and in fact, in the end, transcribing um, their entire stories verbatim. And this led eventually to the publication of my book, Portraits of Resilience, which pairs uh, photographic images of the subjects um, with their stories. Hmm. And so what, were there themes or motifs? I mean, I know when I started to study resilience and from the study of psychology, they talked about particular traits. They talked about characteristics and um, practices. And that that guided that has guided this podcast uh, in, in how I think about the topics and the conversations. W- could Was that manifest? Could you s- discern that in the... Oh, absolutely. So I would say that, first of all, I should say, you know, that there are 24 people in my book and every one of the stories is very individual. And, and one of the things I'm proud of is that um, there's nothing politically correct in the book. Mm. People said whatever they felt and they have the uh, the authenticity of, you know, the person speaking about their own experiences. And so people say very different things, sometimes conflicting things. On the other hand, there are, of course, um, commonalities. The origins of their depression and mental health challenges are al- almost always um, fit a pattern with varying components, but that pattern is almost always some genetic predisposition, some mm-hmm. childhood trauma, maybe some abuse or some bad events. Um, then often some stress in a very competitive environment, um, often some social isolation and a kind of lethal cocktail. Mm-hmm. The, the remedies that people found um, were likewise a combination of different factors, often uh, medications, which often had remarkable effects, particularly for the people who were most um, uh, susceptible to uh, biological factors, um, talk therapy, of course. But what interested me in particular were the strategies people used um, and the role of their friends in the community mm-hmm. and their understandings of, of, of some of the larger issues um, that might have tipped them over the edge that make depression and anxiety so prevalent in our society. I think that's exactly, it's so interesting to me, like that's exactly right about strategies and, and community, those two things that you said. I mean, I, that's what I think whenever I try to apply the lens of resilience to Judaism, I think that it's so much deeper than this, but I'm just astonished at how much about Jewish living, about the practices embedded in, are essentially strategies toward helping us contend with what life presents us, whether it's joy or whether it's sorrow, that these are strategies to ground us, to locate us in in time and in space and in and in connection to others and to bolster us to to go on with what comes next. Um, and I think the communal piece is so essential because um, I think that's how we understand ourselves most fully. And I do think that the hyper-individualism of contemporary society is not helping us in our humanity and is not helping us in our in our mental health. I think you're so right. And I think, you know, particularly at a place like MIT, there's a tendency to sort of think of organized religion um, as a collection of dogmas, that it's all about subscribing to some narrow beliefs. And, um, but as you say, it's, um, you know, it's really about, it's about action. It's about what you do. And it's about doing that in a community. Um, and the truth is, that's why, that's why people find meaning um, in, in Judaism, I believe. It's not because they sign up for some list of dogmas, because after all, we all, we all have different understandings of, of God and um, 
Jewish tradition and so on. But what we share um, is our is our community and and pursuing our lives together. I think that's right, and I think especially where you started with the fact that the people in your in your book are are struggling with depression. I was just having this conversation with someone about how when I try to make the case for being a part of a community, it is often because it, a com- community as a resilience factor, community as a place to both celebrate um, and also to support at moments of extremists or loss or crisis, and how uh, it's very hard to find yourself a community when you are at that place of extremists, that it's, it is a bit of an investment. I was speaking not long ago to a man who lost his wife very suddenly. She was very healthy and she died. And the details were made it uh, this this devastating loss even harder. They were traveling abroad and it took a long time until they were able to return her body home. And he said to me afterwards, I am spending more time at my synagogue than I ever, ever imagined. But this is the this is the group that is supporting me and sustaining me each and every day. Uh, I mean, it's, it's family too, but... That's and, right. And I was saying, you know, like he, he had that existing relationship. And for sure, if he had walked through the door, it is likely they would have embraced him. But um, but but instead, they all, they rushed to aid him at every at every step along the way. I think that's right. And I think, I think you know, I would go even further than that and say that I think we're coming to realize that in our, in this sort of hyper-individualized view that we have in the modern era... Um, we've created a notion of self, which I think is in some ways yeah. not altogether beneficial. And it's very different from older ancient notions of self, which um, which are much more permeable. Um, and I think that we've come to realize that even our definition of ourselves is intricately tied up with our relationship to other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of my one of my portrait people said something to me, which has uh, which has I don't wouldn't say it's haunted me. It's inspired me. It's it's stuck in my mind ever since she said it. This was Lydia Kresilnikova, and she said, you don't realize what people are doing in your life, what roles they're playing sometimes until they die. And you don't know what you're holding together in other people's lives. You might not know that you are the glue holding together so much because you take yourself for granted, just like we take other people for granted. Um, And I love this idea Mm -hmm. of everyone as sort of glue holding everyone else Mm -hmm. together, that Mm -hmm. we're not not like uh, billiard balls bouncing around. But we're in some kind of, uh, la- you know, we're in some larger, larger, larger sense. You know what Thich Nhat Hanh called the interbeing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, exactly. That we're we're this, part of each other's lives. That's right. That. This deep interconnectivity. Uh, that, that, and that we cannot, you know, I mean, the John Donne poem, like we're, we're not an island. We cannot exist in isolation. And in fact, that we, we, we suffer. We suffer terribly, I think, when we act as if we do. And I, I think the planet suffers as well. I, I mean, it, it, it really, Absolutely. it just it re, re, redounds in so many directions. I'm not certain I fully want to leave behind the tension between religion and science, but let's actually turn to religion first, even as Judaism is so much more than just a religion. You started on this project. It began as a photographic project and it, it, it expanded to include the voices as well as the portraits. Um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful collection. I know it mostly from from your website, portraitsofresilience.com. Since you've completed it, uh, it kind of kicked off an investigation for you about how it uh, how it relates to to your life as a Jew. So I'd love for you to kind of narrate a little bit about what what that looks like and and uh, that that investigation. Sure. Well, you know, I guess um, during the project itself, I was very caught up with uh, trying to be respectful and open to the voices of of my participants. Um, and of course, there was a lot of work in putting the book together, in designing the book, and in getting it published, and so on. And then. After the book was published, 
um, as I started to give some talks to promote the book and and so on, in particular talking to Jewish audiences, I found myself being asked to, you know, or maybe asking myself to connect the lessons of the book to to uh, traditional Jewish themes. And I realized that I hadn't really uh, fully explored that. Truth be told, I, it, I had been thinking about it much earlier. I think uh, I told you in an earlier discussion that when we were um, when we were suffering from um, one of my family members having this terrible de- uh, major depressive episode, um, I think I was I was thinking very much about that and the pain of that time. And I was I was thinking about uh, tefillah prayer and the ways in in which the the things that we say in our in our traditional uh, prayers or our non traditional pr- prayers connect or don't connect to this. And and one phrase that that, that really struck me enormously was this uh this phrase from the morning service which i actually you know, came to realize is actually not even universal in traditional prayer books because it turns out it's uh, unique to the uh, to the sephardic tradition which i grew up with um in the in the prayer of baruch she'amar there is a a line baruch ma'avir afela umevi ora blessed be the one um who causes afela darkness to pass and brings light. And for me, this was a very resonant phrase. First of all, because in my understanding, the word afela is used to connote a kind of deep, mm-hmm. thick darkness. Mm-hmm. And it really struck me that depression is really a very, very mm-hmm. deep darkness for people who suffer from it. And, you know, we were, we were just desperately hoping that this, that this darkness would pass. It seemed to be interminable. So that, that sort of got me thinking about Jewish texts and their, and their various resonances. Um, and then after, as I said, after the book came out, um, I started thinking about which Jewish texts would most connect to the lessons, the lessons in the book. And, um, and I think that's when I started looking back at the writings of Rabbi Nachman of Bretzlav um, and his, his comments on, on depression and, and various other things and, and started, you know, trying to connect these things together. Uh, it's so wonderful. You know, I just was checking... Um... So just a just a shout out for the Reconstructionist Prayer Book. Uh, in our version, as the wonderful Prayer Book Commission was compiling it 30 years ago, they tried to draw extensively from Sephardi Nusach, from the Sephardi tradition. Uh, so that line is in that part of the liturgy in the Reconstructionist Prayer Book oh, as well. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, when you were pausing about Afela as this kind of enveloping darkness, I was reminded that the um, author, William Styron, wrote a memoir of his depression, um, which was very influential for me maybe 15, 20 years ago when I read it, really kind of trying to describe that that his experience was really something very, very different from a day when you're feeling blue or you're feeling grumpy or you're feeling that this is, that it, it just shapes every single uh, moment and every single interaction and impairs in such a powerful way. And he calls that memoir Darkness Visible. So it just seems like, ex- yes. you're, like you're, ex- I think that you're right. That is a metaphor. There's a lot of power there. I'd love to invite you to tie this in also to photography and to the interplay of light and darkness in the visual artistry that you create. Thank you. Well, um, I guess one thing that comes to mind is uh, I I made a little promotional video when the book came out and I asked some of um, my subjects to talk about the experience of being in the book and being interviewed and photographed. And one of the wonderful comments that a colleague of mine, Sally Lee, made was she said that it was very it was very empowering to be brought out of the darkness into the light. And it struck mm. me that that was, that was both sort of literal 
in terms of the photograph and the rather bright lights that I used in the mm. little studio that I set up, and also metaphorical in the sense that there's lots of discussion about depression and anxiety, but very rarely are the people who actually experience it brought to the fore and given a voice and yeah. uh, a face to, yeah. to talk about it. Yeah. It's so interesting. There's light and there's also visibility. Like what light shines on to make things visible, to being willing to come out of it, to uh, seek treatment, willing to come out of it, to to tell one story, I think is very... That's right. I mean, I was actually completely amazed in a sense at how um, my project participants were so willing to tell really incredibly personal, intimate details of their lives. And I kept thinking that at any point they would pull out. They wouldn't want to be on the web. They wouldn't want to be in the book. Um, but every single one of them just, if anything, became more enthusiastic as the project proceeded. Mm -hmm. And I came to realize that actually, you know, I, I'd originally just thought of them as wonderful altruistic participants who were going to help destigmatize depression and anxiety for everybody else. But I came to realize that they were also experiencing a kind of catharsis mm -hmm. and confronting um, their own shame. And I came to realize that, you know, the stigmatization uh, of depression is so often by the people who suffer it themselves that they, 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 of course, completely mistakenly, they, they often blame themselves for their own depression. Yeah. And showing your face and telling your story is a way to, to, to quieten that voice inside you that's telling you that it's your own fault. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, I do think that, um, I mean, I think that's the premise behind a lot of liberation movements, certainly the women's movement in the 60s and the 70s, just the, the encounter groups and telling one's story is, is, is so incredibly powerful. I, it's so interesting to kind of loop it back to Jewish liturgy. I want to reflect a little bit on, on another piece of the morning liturgy, but I also want to just talk globally a little bit about Jewish liturgy. The traditional liturgy strongly prefers the we, the collective. You know, the high holiday liturgy illustrates it so powerfully, our father, our king, Avinu Malkenu, or for the sins that we committed, that, that, that the whole long list of Alchet sins is, is all in the collective. And one of the things that I have struggled with with Jewish liturgy is uh, the loss of the self in that. That the, the, On the one hand, I'm always going to make the argument for community because I think that we, I really do think that we come to our full humanity in relationship with others. And the flip side of that is when you get lost, when you get made invisible somehow, or when you just can't see yourself within it. So I remember, you know, uh, early in my rabbinical student career, when I was really grappling with the theology and the intention undergirding the daily prayers and, and the morning service every day, there's a prayer, Ahava Rabba Ahavtanu, with a great love, you have loved us. And I thought, look, sure, I, I agree. I understand that. I accept that. I think that's incredibly powerful. It's That's right before the Shema. The Shema talks about love. It, you know, it's, it's very, very important. But underneath it all was, but what about me? Am I loved? Am I lovable? So I could, I, there, the, the we was... Um, the story was lost. And so to raise up the, you know, how to raise up the I within the we to find that best possible balance between yeah. the collective and the individual. I, I think that's a great observation. I think it's something we all struggle with. It's that balance between our communal selves and our individual selves. You know, one of the things that comes to mind when you talk about this is that, again, in the Sephardic tradition, um, there's a, a, a vidui, a confession that is recited um, in Mincha, the afternoon service. And um, this confession, I, I don't remember who it's written by. It's one of those wonderful uh, Spanish poet rabbis. And in it, the confession describes how the different parts of the body each are, are each asked to 
um, to plead forgiveness on account of every other part mm-hmm, of the body. Mm-hmm. And the hands say, oh, but how could I do it? Because we've done all these bad things. And the, the mind, the head says, how could I do it? I've thought all these bad thoughts. And the lips say, I've told all these lies and so on. And then uh, the confession ends um, with, with essentially this kind of feeling of resignation and uh, inability for any of the parts of the body to advocate for themselves. Mm. And it ends with the beautiful words, and, and each one said to the other, mirroring the, the language of the angels mm-hmm. in the famous Kiddushah prayer, and immediately is followed by Ashamnu Bagadnu, we, oh. we, you know, we ascend. And so I find this very beautiful because um, what the author has done is essentially subverted the communal confession um, exactly in line with your thought, which is to say, which is to reinterpret that we have sinned in terms of the different parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I find that and find that a very beautiful and moving moving idea that you know we are these multiple parts and that that we have a we have a we inside as well in some sense. Yeah, yeah. But I think that one of the things that's really important to focus in on this conversation is both the confessional piece and then the forgiveness piece, like that the presumption that there is. I mean, I because I feel like that's a critical part of resilience is moving beyond just the preoccupation with the, the deficits. Uh, I mean, I, I, I absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think it's a big risk of, you know, our high holy day period that you can beat yourself up too much. One of the things that I like about the, the liturgy is that I think it has this very interesting sort of chiastic structure. Well, it's sort of, uh, you know, we always start sort of with the negative. We've we've committed these offenses. We're sorry, and it always ends with forgiveness and positivity. You know, the way that we end, even you know, whenever we have a haftarah or something, a you know, a reading from the prophets, we always that where the chapter will end with a very negative statement. We always bring back a mm-hmm. positive one to close. So, what I like about the liturgy is that it, it almost has this fractal quality that that turning from the negative to the positive happens at every level it happens in in the day in going from the the beginning of kol nidre to the end of neila with its very optimistic uh, the closing prayer with its very optimistic tone and it happens within the individual services and it also often happens within the individual prayers and i think this is a recognition of our psychological need you know to not dwell we can't ruminate on our on our failures we have to always be turning towards the positive i think that's right and i think for me as a rabbi it's one of the pieces of pain when I know that for people who only go to synagogue during the high holiday season, I was sitting with someone yesterday who described herself as I'm a a two-day-a-year Jew, because I think that the breadth of Jewish liturgy, and I would add in the breadth of Jewish practice, tries to orient ourselves toward that. And when you only dip in to to these days of intense um, self-reflection, um, and even castigation, you're missing all of the things that buoy us and that orient us more toward toward the light. And that's what I, I mean, what, there are two lines from the morning liturgy that I want to raise up. Um, both of them are from the, the Yotzer prayer, the prayer for creation, um, which is right before that Ahava Rabbah prayer I was just talking about. So right after we do the call to worship, the very beginning. And so I think it's exactly what the, that dynamic you were just talking about. Um, this prayer that is uh, celebrating God in nature and celebrating that miracle that light has returned again um, after a time of darkness, uh, which you know, the way the ancients may have experienced it. Well, the line draws from the, the book of the prophet Isaiah, 
Yotzer Or Voreh who creates uh, light, and a different word who creates darkness. Oseh Shalom is the original, who makes peace and evil. I mean, there are tr- different translations of all of these words, but that's a rough translation. The liturgists shift it to Yotzer Or Voreh who creates light and uh, creates darkness. Oseh Shalom who makes peace and who is the fashioner of all things. And I just think that, that you know, to, to move beyond that duality, those dualisms, to some kind of holism that carries both the hard and the good, the joyous, the evil and the, the well-meaning and the, the effectively good. I, my breath is taken away every time I, I dwell on it. And when I'm having a hard time, I'm, I'm really aware of that switch because I, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm drawn toward the dualism, when, I, when I'm feeling stuck in the, in the raw, in the evil, in the bad, and think, no, this is, I don't, I don't have a full understanding of this. I have strategies that can guide me out of it. I have people I can lean on. This is part of the whole. It is not, um, it is not limited to what I think it is. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's very wise. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also reminded of that um, statement of Rabbi Nachman of Bretzlav, who says, even in the, the hiding of God, God is to be found. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there he's addressing an even more painful concern, which is that for some people, life just seems to be a place of permanent darkness. And I, and I think that certainly when I look at my own life, I'm very fortunate that it is a, it is a hakol, as you say, it's a, it's an everything which is mostly very good with occasional things which are not so happy. But I'm struck that, you know, I think that Rabbi Nachman even wanted to point out that even in the times when things seem, we seem to be in a total void, um, you know, we can imagine God there with us. Yeah. Rabbi Nachman is a great place for us to wind down. I mean, he's, um, for, for listeners who don't know him, he was a, a great Hasidic master. And the consensus is that he himself suffered from terrible, terrible depression. So he was writing right at the beginning of the of the modern era when the individual was really just like the whole concept of the individual was just starting to emerge. And readers of his works, you see that he, there's a psychology that he's working for, and he's always trying to bolster both individuals who are suffering personally and also Jews who are suffering collectively. And he he writes uh, powerfully, eloquently, and I think with a you know. Uh, I don't know if desperation is the right word, but you know, with with a desperate desire to to understand and to try to break through this, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I um, I'm I'm no great, you know, I'm no great scholar, um, but I've read a few fragments of Menachem Nebretzlav, and they're incredibly potent. The one that the one that comes to mind, you know, most for me is you know, is a, is a line that uh, you know is now uh, being made famous by by his Hasidim. This. Uh, because it was made into a song, yep. which a lot of people know. Uh, it's a great mitzvah commandment to always be happy. And I, I remember when I was, you know, in my yeshiva days uh, back in seminary, you know, I remember that people used to sing this passionately at weddings. And we, we had this naive idea that what he meant by this was it was a sort of, you know, uh, uh, well, be jolly, you know. Right. You, party uh, on. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Party mm-hmm. on and you'd be happy all the time. Yeah. And, and of course, there's certainly something to be said, and now we know psychologically, if you can redirect your thoughts all the time right. uh, to happier ones, then it, it has a deep long-term psychological right. effect. But, but you know, I came to realize that what Rabbi Nachman was saying was really something much more profound, which was that the reason being happy is a great commandment 
is because like other commandments, it's a formidable challenge. Yeah. Um, and what he was really saying was it, it's not the natural state of affairs for us all to be happy and that it's a, it's a lifelong enterprise. And, and for some people, you know, it's an epic struggle yeah. um, to, to find happiness. And right. I think that that can be both um, inspiring and reassuring. Right. And I think that's exactly right, that this is, it's an, it's an orientation rather than just a, a description. You know, it's a, like to tur- turn yourself to this, uh, set, set yourself on this course rather than just, you know, expect that you're there already. So, ah, Daniel, what a, what a rich and wonderful conversation. I know we could keep going, but I think we've come to the end of our time. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been, it's been wonderful talking to you and, uh, uh, very inspiring. And I'm, I've been delighted to be part of this. Um, I'm so glad you're part of it. And I hope that listeners will also spend some time looking at um, Portraits of Resilience, which you can find on the website by that name, portraitsofresilience.com. And if you're interested in Daniel's uh, uh, other photographs, you can find them at dnj.photo. That's it. That's a, it's a new domain, so don't don't tack on anything after that. Um, and we'll also uh, upload links to those sites and some other resources, uh, both on hashivenu.fireside.fm and on reconstructingjudaism.org. And you can always find more resources on ritualwell.org. Many thanks. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Mm-hmm.